Hello, and welcome from the Renaissance Baptist Church of Brooklyn in Ontario, Canada. Join us this week as Pastor John Blackman shares from the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, as we looked at last week, they uh, form a bridge between the first half of chapter 6 and the second half of chapter 6. Um, you could say that everything in the first eight verses lead up to it, and everything in the verses after, verses 9 to 11, flow out of it. I, I said recently uh, at an elders meeting, we were looking at this passage, I said, you know, the new uh, Samsung phone that like folds out, right? And, and you have this big screen. Well, verses 9 to 11 are that hinge right in the middle, completely connected to everything Paul was just talking about, and then completely connected with everything that he talks about for the... Uh, rest of the message, um, the rest of this chapter. And uh, that's this, these verses that say, uh, so let's just jump right into them from last week. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you, we looked at these words last week, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Like I said, that's a conclusion to what Paul had been talking about, and we looked at it last week, about this problem that this church had, where the internal disputes were not being resolved within the community of faith, and we're dragging one another to court. You know, I said, for a Christian, see you in court should never really be the, the, the first statement that comes out. It could maybe see you at church, and we'll go and have this resolved. Um, Paul was kind of saying to them, he was trying to draw their, we're talking about the law right now, and he's basically reminding them, reprimanding them, that they had perfectly good resources. God's law, like we just talked about this morning, Christian teaching, teachers, the gift of the Holy Spirit, um, which includes the power of the Holy Spirit, right in their local congregation. So when they, would, uh, when they were continuing on in this behavior of dragging one another to court, they were really damaging their ability to do what God saved them for. We've been talking about that a lot this, this week, um, this series. You know, back in chapter one of 1 Corinthians, we, we kind of have their identity here to, those, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus that's set apart and called to be his holy people together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because he's the same people. He's talking to the same people here as he is in chapter six. I always thank God, my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus, for in him you've been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and all knowledge. Thus, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you don't lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. So Paul's kind of reminding them in chapter five, you have what you need to, to deal with this within the community of faith. But it's far more than just pragmatism. Like he's not just saying, well, so don't waste your money on lawyers or don't tie up court time. He's basically telling them that uh, they were saved for a purpose, to display God's glory in a dark world. That they were to be a light on a hill, a city set apart, so that people could see what the righteousness of God looks like, right? They'd be displaying his glory and his rule. We're to look like we're in the kingdom of God, which means there's a king. And if there's a king, then... 
And that means it's not you, so then you're in submission to this king that is over and above you. That's how you display his glory and his rule. We're supposed to bring people a glimpse of God's holiness and goodness. Uh, Other scriptures reveal that God's spirit would use this very thing to convict the world about sin and judgment. John, that's in the Gospel of John. Jesus called it in Matthew, called letting our light shine before men. He basically says, why would anybody light a lamp and then put it under a bushel and hide it, filter it, darken it, when you're meant to be a light in a dark place? Using Paul's kind of metaphor here, we could say, you know, why would somebody go to all the trouble of laundering their uniform and then put dirt all over it? as soon as they pull it out of the laundry? Or why would somebody bake beautiful bread? We've talked about this bread and leaven. Why would you bake bread and then sprinkle garbage on it just before you served it to somebody? It doesn't make any sense. It's a a contradiction of its purpose and all of these things. So Paul's been talking about that. So this idea last week of fighting for my individual rights to get what's mine or defrauding one another, that's by definition that we just read, wrongdoing. That's wrongdoing. He said, these, these wrongdoers do these kinds of things. So when we, as Christians, exhibit these behaviors, we're just kind of exhibiting the same behaviors as hellbound wrongdoers. And, and that, again, that's such a contradiction because they were a washed people. They were made a holy people. They were people that were judged as righteous before God. So like I say in verses one to eight, they're acting like the unrighteous hellbound, not the chosen kingdom citizens. So let me ask you a quick skill testing question. Do you think the people in verse one to eight will lose their salvation by going to court? Probably not, none of us think that. I don't think, I think if you became a Christian and you didn't resolve an argument, you went to court, I don't think that means you're going to hell. Well, I ask that question because for certain, Paul, that's not the threat here. He's for certain telling them to not do it. He's for certain telling them to not do it. Uh, I'm not taking, uh, so, let me just get these notes right. For certain, Paul intends for them to stop doing it. So, So I'm not asking if they're acting like saved people. I'm asking if they would still qualify as saved people. And that's the problem, right? God's redeemed people acting like the unredeemed. That's why Paul says it's, it's to our shame because we're meant to be this unleavened loaf that we can serve. And it's just, it's like, why would we do that? He, he, he uses that shock word shame. And that's that the glorious calling of chapter one that we just reread. It's completely contradicted by their behavior. It renders them unfit for duty in their vocation. Like the thing that they were called to, this kind of behavior kind of renders you unfit for duty. Kind of renders you unfit for duty. So we carry that same argument forward in the rest of chapter six, and then we come to the topic of sexual immorality. And that was already a ton of it right there in verses nine to 11 that we really didn't deal with last week. Um, Sexual immorality, among other methods of defacing the community representation of the temple of God, his dwelling place on earth, right? That, remember, we talked about foundations and building this temple, and, and you, you just don't strap any, you just don't nail any board onto the, uh, nail any board onto the temple. Um, it, it's a certain perfectly laid foundation of the gospel, and we build on that foundation, and we only bring things in that are fit for what it's meant to declare. We were meant to, 
together as a community of faith be a dwelling place for God to live within. Everything about our connection and our relationship should be about expressing the identity of God. Um, And we're going to find out in our passage, even our individual lives are more of the same. So let's jump uh, jump into it. Uh, I've already reread verses 9 to 11. Let me point out that some context here. Paul is addressing this actual congregation, a community of believers, and this congregation included members, if you look at verses 9 to 11, who had been involved in homosexuality. Uh, To be technical in this one instant, there are other scriptures that are more general. Paul actually uses two words that include the active and passive participants and nearly every Bible scholar I looked up was way more detailed than I want to be this morning. You can look at the uh, footnotes in your Bibles. But he's, he's talking here about the sin of, I don't even know how to pronounce it quite properly, pederasty. Or in the UK, I think it's pederasty. And that's a sexual relationship between an adult man and a pubescent or adolescent boy. Um, from the dictionary, the term pederasty is primarily used to refer to historical practices of certain cultures, particularly ancient Greece and ancient Rome, right where Corinth is. Huge part of their culture. And Paul's saying, that's not what God called you to be. That, that doesn't reflect the community of faith. That's, that's not God's calling for your life. Um, You know, sadly, some people try to use this fact that this is specifically what Paul's talking about in this passage to say, well, he's not talking about um, homosexual acts, carte blanche, just abusive, oppressive ones, and we could go down a huge rabbit hole about that. I don't really want to spend a lot of time refuting that conclusion um, because Romans and other scriptures, we're going to look at Romans a little bit later, they have more of a blanket whole idea why this is just out of... It's outside. <laughs> it's outside their calling. It's, it's outside their identity as, as the community of faith. There's popular criticism about Orthodox Christian teaching that's, that, you know, what I just said um, qualifies as actual hate speech. It's bigoted. It's discriminatory by definition. I'll come back to that in our series uh, because this topic doesn't go away too quickly in 1 Corinthians. And uh, the, the refutation of that accusation is really a principal part of the book that I've been trying to encourage you to buy, read, the book study I want to go through this winter called Love Thy Body. Um, For now, let's just say that Paul's saying to a congregation that claims spiritual maturity and giftedness and wisdom that by all of the behaviors listed in verses 9 to 11, they're actually actually, um, displaying exactly the opposite. So they're contradicting their own self-image and them thinking that they're all this. Um, the congregation, if you look at the list, also seems to include kleptomania, greed, gossip, crooked business de- dealings. Again, um, I want to direct you, like a, a, a misguided use of this passage is, uh, it sometimes gets used as proof that anybody who commits a homosexual act is somehow by definition proving that they're not saved. Very few of those people would say, and somebody that, sells a car and they know the transmission's bad but they take advantage of another person and swindle them in a deal or somebody that uh, gossips, they're obviously can't be saved 
because look what they've done. That's, that's not really the point of Paul's argument here right here. He's saying it's a complete contradiction of what God made you to be. It's, it's, a, it's a complete abuse of your calling. Let's just be careful to keep all forms of sexual immorality in the same file folder when it comes to what we place in the sin bin. Like I said, we'll circle back on this one. Um, I realize many of you have huge struggles thinking about uh, the Bible's teaching on what the world, not the scriptures, what the world refers to as sexual preference, as well as the world, not the Bible's dogma under the term sexual identity, um, as well as claims um, claims that it's strongly up to you to determine all of these things, or you're the source, or you're the determining factor in all of these things. Again, the world's personhood theory, not coming from our holy scriptures. The Christian teaching is that sexual identity is determined by our creator, and male and female, he created them. Romans 1, I referred to it. Let's just, I want to take you on a quick look to it here, because it kind of illustrates a little bit uh, of what I'm talking about for certain, a little bit, a lot. Yeah, it's, it's a famous passage um, in Romans chapter 1 where Paul writes, The wrath of God's being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. And this is the line, Who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. Then later on, Paul, one of his first examples of how this works out, he says down in verse uh, 23, uh, 22, and although they claimed to be wise, like the Corinthians, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. That's idolatry. Therefore, God gave them over in sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And then it goes down into sexual immorality. If you look in verses 26 on down, um, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. What's Paul talking about here? It's that even your bodies and how they were created, uh, the term is they're teleological. They have a purpose. They're going somewhere. They, they, they actually have a message built into them in, in the way they're created. Male and female distinctiveness I don't have a slide for this, <laughs> are created in such a way that something can be discovered and learned about God and his goodness just by understanding the human body and how it was meant to be used. Um, let's keep going. Verse 12, Paul's now quoting maybe a slogan that was popular of his day. I have the right to do anything, you say. You know, hey, we're not under the law, we're under grace. I'm, I'm free to do anything. That might be what he's getting at here. Paul says, you say that, but not everything's beneficial. <laughs> I have the right to do anything, but not everything's beneficial. But I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Again, I think Paul's quoting popular slogans and this whole, uh, we've been talking a lot in the last couple of months, but the wisdom of the world is, is kind of flowing into this congregation and they're making decisions and living their life and they're being formed by bad teaching or bad wisdom or not God's wisdom. And, it, and it's forming them. Um, if our, in our day, if he was writing to Renaissance Baptists instead of uh, First Corinthians Baptists, he might have used slogans like, my body, my choice, or I was made this way, or it can't be wrong. 
if it feels so right, you light up my life. Like he might be using slogans like that to talk to us about this very issue, right? I will not be mastered by anything. What's he hitting on here? Um, Were you a little puzzled by my uh, carpentry this morning? (laughs) I grabbed a pipe wrench and uh, did manage to drive a nail, but uh, it's not good for the pipe wrench. It's not the most effective way to drive a nail. And it's not what the uh, inventor, Mr. Wrench, and his partner, Mr. Pipe, uh, had in mind when they created the pipe wrench. Um, I was actually using a pipe wrench to do something it wasn't intended for, and luckily Mr. Uh, MC Hammer already invented the hammer, so there already is a tool for driving nails, and the pipe wrench is not it. It's not what a pipe wrench was made for. Uh, Paul's saying, you were set free, you were created by God as a sexual being, you were set free by the act of God, I, I hope I've repeated that enough in the past weeks. You weren't set free from one type of bondage in order to find yourself a slave to something else. You know, let's just take a little breather and a time out from this really electric topic of sexual immorality and let's just think about um, other appetites uh, or other less less loaded uh, freedoms that you might be able to think of as a Christian that you're free to do. You know, it could be recreation, food consumption, your vocational choices, the dreams for your children's future. And before you know it, they're at the top of the list of those values. And, and you're now mastered by them. And they're completely directing your life. And it's as if you were just put on this planet to get your golf score down below 80. Is that a good golf score? I don't know. You know, and, and, and we become masters of something and, and we just can't stop it. And before we know it, these other things have taken control. Paul says, we're not to be masters of anything because we've already got one. We've already got a master. There's, there's, the position's not open. You don't, you don't really put a sign out in front of your Christian home and say, opening for a master because you've already got one. We've already got one as a church. We become slaves to things and they master us. Um, it, I don't think anybody here today would claim that, generally speaking, our sexuality is a difficult um, part of our lives to master, to place under Christ's mastery. We'll, we'll come back to that. Here's the big question, though. The big question goes back to my little uh, pipe-nailing uh, experiment here. Why do you have a body? That's where Paul's getting at. Like the body's made for food, the food, food for the body. Um, they're both temporal, will end in eternity. But, but uh, Paul is really, I think, setting you up for that next line, that we were created as sexual beings, but not for the practice of sexual immorality. <laughs> That's not what our bodies were made for. Um, we're pipe wrenches trying to drive nails when we try to use our bodies for that way. Look at verse 14. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? 
For it is said, the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. That's quite a paragraph. It's probably another reason why there's no flannel graphs in the set out there in the portable for this chapter. Uh, Some really crucial things that you need to see. I would call them must-see TV. And by TV, I mean true vision to really understand this. First of all, in verse 14, your body is you. It does matter. Your, your body does matter. Some people have a pretty sad view of the human body. Uh, again, I'm going to keep pumping the book. I want you to at least read it even if you don't. I really hope you'll join the book study. But even if you don't, I hope you'll buy the book and read it or listen to it. Um, some people have a pretty low, sad view of the human body. Um, and, and that book is going to help us un, unwind those toxic worldviews. Some people have a real dualistic view of the body, like it's an enemy, and our, our, our inner real person um, is, is what really matters, and it needs to control this body. And you'll hear language at Christian funerals that say more than the person sharing the words mean to say, and that's when they say, you know, that's not dad, that's just his body. Like, it's no big deal. That's just his body, as if it's not a big deal for a human beings to be separated from their body. We are embodied spirits. Jesus had a new resurrection body after he died on the cross, and we will too. Like, if bodies didn't matter, why do we get a new one? Why do we get a new one if bodies don't matter, if it's just all about the spirit? We got lots of resurrection talk coming up in chapter 15. Look at verse 15 to 17. Um, we, we may love, it's really a very recent innovation of terminology. We, we throw it around a lot, especially in trying to explain the gospel to children. And we talk about this idea of asking Jesus into our hearts. I think Paul's point in verses 15 to 17 is that Jesus is in all of our other body parts as well. You are an embodied spirit. The idea of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that's one of the joys of our salvation. It's the seal. It's the assurance of our salvation. There's, there's, but the, one of the things about it is that Jesus, the Holy Spirit, Jesus through the Holy Spirit indwells our actual bodies. You know, like pinch your finger right now. Jesus indwells your actual body. There's no longer anything we do without Jesus. If you've given your life to Christ and proclaimed him Lord of your life and you're in the kingdom and he's the king, there's nothing any longer, there's nothing that you did last week that you didn't do with Jesus. Uh, In the early days of credit cards, one of the longest running taglines, it was all through my childhood and high school and probably college, was the, the tagline, never leave home without it. Or don't leave home without it. We just heard that over and over again in commercials. Well, as a Christian, um, if you're born again of the Spirit of God, you never leave home without him. You never touch another person, even in an act of beautiful Christian service, without him. You don't engage in marital, marital intimacy without him. You don't connect your body to the body of a prostitute, Paul says, without him. Christian football players don't lower their helmets and annihilate an opponent with a violent collision and then stand over them expressing their macho dominance without taking the Holy Spirit with them. 
See, it's pretty complicated, isn't it, when you start thinking there's nothing that you do that you don't take Jesus with you. There are so many applications of this fact that your bodies are members of Christ himself. But I still have this question. You have a body. Why is that? Why do you have a body? How do you display Jesus as the center of life and not have that directly impacted by the fact that you have a body? How you use or abuse your body. Uh, we're going to return to that, this in verses 19 to 20. Um, verse 18, if you like outlines and you want a tagline, I would say flee, don't flirt. Paul says flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Look at that line, one, two, three, first four words. Flee from sexual immorality. Just let that sink in a bit. Is there any line in Scripture more countercultural and increasingly hard to obey than that one? We, we've all grown up, uh, I know, like, I mean, my parents grew up without television until who knows when they, who, I don't know how old they were before they had their first. We've all grown up in the era of Madison Avenue and advertising and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and, and one of the key ideas is, like, sex sells. So, so the, this whole idea of, of, like, fleeing from sexual immorality, it gets harder and harder to do in many ways. I don't think it's a new problem. I don't, let me, don't let me uh, try to say that. But uh, I don't pretend to know what portion of our international economy is dedicated to advertising. Let's just say the budget is much bigger to draw you toward sexual immorality than the one to try to draw you away from it. And by the way, this is only one of the many hazards of media, social media. Um, as an adult, you know, you probably know as an adult, you got a cell phone, you got a Facebook account, you, maybe you're on Instagram, and those are all driven by advertisings. And then all of a sudden it's like, whoa. What the heck is this? And you, you change this ad away, and it's, it all just kind of seeps in, right? And you, you try to change the settings on that kind of ad. I don't really want these kinds of ads, please. And, you know, you have to do all that because it's just constantly coming in like a flood, right, the, with a tap on. Well, think about that and the uh, biology of the adolescent brain. <laughs> the biology of the adolescent brain. Uh, do you know why it's illegal to target cigarette ads or alcohol ads toward teenagers? Because our government is our brother's keeper on this one. And even pagan governments know that a 13 to 15-year-old that takes up smoking is a customer for life. Because there are biological reasons behind lifelong addictions that start when we're teenagers. So, so we're all like, hey, as parents, we're like, that's what I want my government to do. I want it to be as difficult as possible for my 13-year-old to be able to buy smokes or alcohol and all of those kind of things. At an LCBO, you can't even have your 10-year-old kid carry your bottle of wine out for you, right? It's against the law for them to handle it even. And we think that's great because that's such a difficult thing to overcome as an addiction. I think 30 years from now, like if you look at old shows and you know there's like, like uh, kids sitting around a table and everybody's smoking or whatever it is, it, it's like, I think 30 years from now, people are going to look at us and say, remember, remember when our grandparents just let our parents have cell phones and just let them go on social media? And it's like, oh, no problem. I, I, honestly, and, and there are some things where there are organizations starting to build in our communities 
where just as they once went after big tobacco, they're now trying to go after big social media because they know something heinous is happening to teenagers and the negative mental health effects that it's having on teenagers. But Paul's not specifically talking about mental health issues because he points out that that's the whole idea with this whole thing of flee. He means run the other way. You know you're in the wrong part of town. You know you're in the domain of a different Lord when you're moving towards sexual immorality. I'm gonna come back to that in a minute. Again, he's, he's concerned about more than mental health. He divides it as being unique from all other sins he rates. And you need to be careful and don't use those words as a proof text that means that sexual sins are worse than all other sins. Um, but for certain, Paul's saying they're unique. They're different from all other sins. That, that word flee, I think he's going back to the story in uh, Genesis where Joseph, remember him, he's a servant in Potiphar's house and uh, Potiphar's wife tries to come on to him and the text says that he fled. He left his coat behind too, by the way. And that's, I think that's a little bit of what Paul's getting after. You know when he fled and left behind his coat, your Bible will tell you? It wasn't a dinner jacket. You know, you think about what people, he left behind his robe. Like Joseph ran out in the street in his gitch. Is that a proper uh, English word? It, he, he would have been, it would have been, pretty, been a pretty embarrassing situation. People would have thought he was crazy. It would have led them to make all kinds of conclusions. But he just like, Paul's like, don't worry about it. Run out in the street in your underwear if that's what it takes. Like flee, run away from this. Um, don't worry about being a spectacle. So what's unique about sexual immorality of all types? Because of this very thing we've been speaking about, that we take Christ with us in everything that we do with our bodies. A a Christian, back to Paul's specific illustration that he does use, can't connect his body with a prostitute as a free agent. And that rolls right into verse 19. Now we we get into the answer here. Why do you have a body? Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. We had a renewal of vows ceremony here a number of years ago. Uh, We did that here. We had a couple that had been married for a long time. I don't remember how long, 25 or 30 years. It was one of the biggies. It was a big anniversary, so they had a big party. They invited a lot of us from the church, they had their friends here, and they had, a, they had a big anniversary party. But one of the things they did is they came right up here in the pulpit, and they said their vows over and again. They, they had a copy of them. They knew exactly what it was they said 25 or 30 years ago. So they thought, you know, this is going to be a little bit of a testimony to our friends, and we want to do this again and stand here and uh, renew our vows. Um, it was a nice, in this actual example, it was a nice moment. It probably wasn't a particularly difficult or awkward one for them because, you know, after all these years, this particular couple still liked each other. You know, their teenagers weren't in the back rolling their eyes like, all right, that's not what we see at home or anything. It It wasn't like that at all. So it was a nice moment. But imagine if in the congregation of people that they were here with, if there, if there were skeletons in the closet, if there was infidelity, if there were these things, well, that would probably be a pretty powerful moment if they renewed those vows. Have you ever thought of the Lord's Supper in that way? As a renewal of your vows. 
that we regularly do. Because I don't think any time we come back to receiving the elements, the symbols of the covenant that God made with us in Christ, that 30 days is a long time. I'm pretty sure we all have got some skeletons in the closet after 30 days since the last time we publicly renewed our vows. So just think about that the next time we come to the Lord's Supper. But this couple was also kind of proclaiming that we still belong to one another. You know, when they gave those same vows to have and to hold and keep myself only unto you, they're saying, yeah, you know what, we, we kind of um, signed away our free agency on these things, free agency by the world's standards, not scriptures, and, and we're still committed to that. I still belong to you. You still belong to me. We're saying that publicly. So this whole idea of fleeing, I talked about the flee, not flirt. What's your flee-flirt ratio? I, I, got, I should, I don't know, maybe I'll invent a meter for that. It's a new term I just made up. Your flee-flirt ratio. Your flee-flirt ratio. Because sometimes we would read Paul's exhortation, and it's not a great way to read them, nor is it correct. And we would kind of hear... Try to flee more often than you flirt with sexual immorality. You know? Paul's not kind of recommending. Try to go for a C minus in sexual. Like, flee it more often than you flirt with it. Paul's most, he's definitely talking about actual, like that's a pretty, pretty graphic illustration he gave, right? Of connecting your body with a prostitute. But what about the mind? That's that target of Madison Avenue and, and Holly Madison, for all that matter. And you've heard all the cliches, well, just because you're on a diet doesn't mean you can't look at the menu. But the problem with that kind of rationalization is it's not a menu. And people that were created in the image of God aren't for sale. And neither is your body. You know, if you're an adolescent, I'd warn you that if you don't want to be tormented by an addiction to pornography for the rest of your life, that dream in your 40s is best achieved now in your youth. Because like scientific research I've already pointed to would lead you to believe that there's very little hope for recovery. Uh, it's a very difficult thing to undo any addiction that you develop while you're a teenager and your brain is growing. That's a public health warning right there. It's also not why God created you as a sexual being. You know, the rest of us adults, it, it may be a battle that you're currently in. Statistics would lead me to believe that's a generous use of the word may. So I'd like to share a story about myself. The room gets pretty quiet. Four, six, six, five, and four years ago, I would see my doctor every couple times every month, and uh, she would tell me I was pre-diabetic, which I would hear as, I'm not diabetic yet. So therefore, in my thinking, you can keep scarfing down chips and bagels, M&M's peanuts, because you can handle it, because you already do that, and you're only pre-diabetic. Like, I'm not diabetic. I'm pre-diabetic. Obviously, I can handle it. What I learned was that the choices I was making that created the condition of pre-diabetic actually meant I was riding on the diabetes bus. And the truth is, this bus doesn't end in a good neighborhood. And sure enough, eventually I rolled into diabetes land. <laughs> Maybe your mental disciplines, your habits, attitudes toward sexual immorality are in your mind, you know, pre-adultery. You know, I'm not an adulterer. 
Uh, I'm pre-adulteric. I don't know what the word is. I'd say it's the same bus. And the adultery bus doesn't end in a good neighborhood. Jesus spoke to people that had too much of a division between physical sexual sin and mental in Matthew chapter 5. And in Matthew chapter 5, he, uh, he said this. I should look it up. It's so popular and so common, you think that we would have it uh, memorized. But in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully with her in his heart. Oh, but let me just say it again. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye got, causes you to stumble, gorge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. I'm glad Dave Pepiot's not here today. He's just about cut his hand off on a table saw. Totally different story. Anyway, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. What, what is that all about? Um, Jesus is validating the difficulty that it is to make a clean break and to get off the, the immorality bus. He, inval- he validates it. What do I mean by that? Because it's going to seem like losing your right arm. It's going to seem like losing your right eye. Uh, by the way, from what friends of mine have shared with me, that's a common experience in any battle for sobriety, is it feels like you're losing your right arm or your good eye. Jesus doesn't diminish the power of sin in this statement or say it's, no, it's some easy thing for anybody to accomplish. And in the words, it requires great faith to believe those three words, it is better. I've said this many times in messages. That's a great act of faith to take Jesus as his word that it's better to live with one arm. That's not easy. That, that, my friends, is an act of faith. It, it begins with faith. It can grow into experience. It may just lead to the joy of one-armed, one-eye faithfulness, but you have to believe it is better. Let me close with some hope. Paul's words in verse 20. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Why is that hopeful? Because there's a glorious alternative. When I said, why do you have a body? All we've talked about so far is what it's not for. Right? We can honor God with our bodies. Honor God with your bodies. Contrary to popular belief, Paul's not saying that the ultimate picture of glorifying God with our bodies is to participate in the kind of sexual activity that the obvious design hints of how men and women were made reveal as we talked about in Romans, get back to our, vo- our verse, glorify God with your bodies. Think about this. Beyond sexual immorality, does a person who has, due to the fact that they're not one in a marriage covenant or not attracted to the opposite sex, does that person have any opportunity then to glorify or honor God in their body? See, that's one of the biggest lies that justifies sexual immorality right there. You know, to be a real man, you have to have a fulfilling sex life. To be a real woman, you have to be able to satisfy a man sexually in the right way. We're going to get to marriage next week, so come early. Advanced warning, you know, the phrase fulfilling marriage can be very misleading. 
Glorify God with your body is completely achievable by a single person. Completely achievable by a single person. We've got to remind ourselves of that. A single person can glorify God with their body. If you want to argue with me that sexual abstinence outside of a marriage covenant between one man and one human, one, one human, one woman, women are humans, by the way, uh, that that's an insult to people's humanity. If you want to argue with me that, that a person can't fulfill the ultimate purpose that God created their body for in a celibate life, let me introduce you to my friend Jesus. Did Jesus honor, glorify God with his body? <laughs> he did more than any other person that ever walked the face of the earth as a single celibate human being. Um, so when Paul says, uh, oh, and by the way, it also involved nails. So when Paul says glorify God with your body, maybe the most important ways you can do that is not even in the marital bedroom. Maybe glorifying God and honoring God with your body can be done washing the feet of homeless people, as one of my new friends here shared an amazing story with me where she did that once. Maybe it's done by using your body to live and move through your world in a way that displays Jesus of, as the center of all life, including my life and, and how I use my body. Maybe it's done in driving a lonely man home from church so he doesn't have to take the bus both ways. Maybe it's done using your hands to prepare a food for a friend who just doesn't have the energy to cook right now. Maybe you can glorify God with your body by going over to the house of the family in crisis rather than just sending an email. Maybe just sitting beside a person grieving serious loss. Actually, in person is one of the reasons God gave you a body. Maybe God gave you a body so you can give it away. You glorify God with your body by respecting it and everyone else's bodies as God's property. You know, one of the biggest temptations, one of the biggest selling points um, in this world, on this track, selling, encouraging, tantalizing you towards sexual immorality is it tells you, you'll find paradise down this path. This is the way to paradise. Jesus said that uh, to only one man in all of Scripture from my uh, knowledge. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. He was about to die. <laughs> so that would work in that situation. For the rest of us called to be disciples of Christ, we won't be today in paradise. I mean, I'm getting up there. Maybe I will be by the time I get home. But we likely won't be in paradise today. So in the meantime... We have a calling with faithfulness. I, I don't mean to make any of these things sound as if they're easy, but they're why you have a body. And we can trust God to use, to enable us to use our bodies for the ways they were intended to glorify him. I, I read this prayer just this week. In what condition would secret reviews of my life leave me? were it not for the assurance that with thee there is plenteous redemption, that thou art a forgiving God, that thou mayest be feared.
that last line, that thou mayest be feared, means that, that there's a possibility, God, that I could live my life in such a way that I'm using my body for the way you intended it. That, that there's hope that I could honor God with my body. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope of um, our calling. We thank you for these incredible pictures that Paul gives us in Corinthians of what we are called to be as a church, what, what you gave us the Holy Spirit for us to enable to be. And now you've sifted that right down to our own individual lives. That what's meant to be true of our congregation is, is meant to be true of ourselves. And Lord, the gap is sometimes so big between the vision of what you call us to be and the person we see in the mirror. So I pray that you would give us grace, forgiveness, hope. Remind us that we were cleansed. We were made holy. We were made to have a right standing before you and that we could display that to the world around us, even with our bodies. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us. For more information, please visit brooklynrbc.ca. The link is also in our bio. On behalf of the Renaissance Baptist Church of Brooklyn, we pray you have a blessed week.